Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wonky Cast. So last weekend I was down in London for the MCM London Comic Con. Uh, you'll be able to find some of the reviews and, and stuff I got up to on, on our website and also on our Facebook page. There's a whole bunch of photos of everything down there. Uh, while I was there, I uh, had the opportunity to chat with the very lovely Saul Rubinek. Uh, now, slightly different to my normal interviews as there were other people there. But thanks very much to everybody who was there doing the interviews on the day. And here it is in its entirety, the chat with Saul Rubinek. Enjoy. <laughs> Okay, cool. No, this is world podcast. Okay, great. So everything I say here is top secret. <laughs> Apart from the whole of the internet and pan global media. There's it's just between yes. us. It's just between yeah. us. It's just between us. You so mean that China will hear about this? Awesome. <laughs> now China doesn't have Warehouse 13, is it yet? I don't think. Uh, I want to hear myself dubbed in Chinese, please. That would be so cool. Well, we 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 have you in Hong Kong, but um, really, yeah. Um, well, there's there's the internet. <coughs> well, they just try to they try to block that. Do they? Or am I going to get in trouble for saying that? There's uh, anyway. I'm glad that it's gone all over the world, but it didn't help us from being canceled eventually. Mm -hmm. But as I say, our fans didn't cancel us, you know. And I have to say, you know, I mean, you guys. I, I'm obviously I'm very old, and I've done a lot of different things. But Warehouse 13 was. was I, I was very disappointed when that went off the air. You know, we were too, um, especially since I still got a son in college. Uh, so I was a <laughs> bit disappointed, and the bank that has my mortgage was disappointed. But other than that, it was a family affair, and I'm sure you could tell from watching it. You guys know the show. Yeah. Um, some of them do. There was a, it was a family, whatever you saw on screen was real. I mean, we loved each other, we fought and argued like a family, we cried together and laughed together every day. And it was one of those things, as a, an actor who'd been in the business for more decades than I, you know, care to mention, I was, I was already at that point in my career thinking I'm going to concentrate on writing and directing. I'd already directed four independent films. I'd, I'd written a play that eventually got on here in London, uh, three years ago at the Chocolate Factory. It was directed by Frank Oz, film director, and it was called Terrible Advice. And I was concentrating on that. I was, you know, concentrating on on that part of my career, on writing. And out of nowhere, um, this Warehouse 13 happened, which is the life of an actor. Um, because those of us that are working actors, you know, we don't sit around with, like movie stars with a dozen offers on the table. That's uh, a rarefied universe that I know nothing about, you know. It really is a question of us working and going to meetings, going to auditions, competing for roles that we want to do and making decisions that are good for us and good for the family at the same time. So suddenly this role came... Uh, came about, and it was a magical piece uh, written by David Sim Simpkins, and then we had the amazing good fortune of bringing on um, this extraordinary man, Jack Kenny, who became our, our head writer and our showrunner, and he really was the father, the artie of the group, and he was able to instill us with a, with a, a great sense. He called it a thriller comedy because we'd have to walk this wonderful tightrope as actors, which had to do with uh, farce, comedy, drama, suspense, tragedy, all usually in the same scene. And we also were proud of it. I mean, Eddie McClintock, who was uh, Pete Latimer on the show, and I were the only two dads on the show, uh, the only two people who had kids on the show. 
um, CC has kids, CC Pounder has kids, uh, that were, you know, we were talking about the fact that we were proud of it, that, that a family could watch the show. You know, there were very few things on the air other than, well, there's some half-hour stuff, but hour-long stuff, anything like that was usually, a con you know, some kind of music competition or a voice competition kind of show, like American Idol or, you know, Britain's Got Talent or whatever. That's when a family watches a show. But if you're talking about a drama or an hour-long drama, what shows can you watch with your kids and feel like you're not being talked up to? And, and this show had you know, sexual innuendos on this level, and it had slapstick on this level, it had intellectual stuff on this level, it had references here, it was all over the place. And so, all over, for the last five years, it's been a, a tremendous pleasure. You notice you don't have to ask me any questions. For the last five years, it, it's, um, it's been a pleasure to, to have people come up to us and tell us that, we're, um, that we made a difference to their families, because they could watch it together. That really was moving to, to me, that that's something that we could do for five years. I, I, I'm thrilled about that. I mean, looking back into the further mists of time, another show that you're involved with that everyone uh, in the world seemed to love and was very emotionally invested in was, of course, Frasier. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm curious um, what it was like being a part of a big you know, TV phenomenon. You know, it was, it was a very odd thing for me because um, I hadn't done a lot of four-camera work. I'd done a little bit as a young actor in Toronto, a couple of shows, and, I, uh, and then I had done a series. In 1997, I was part of a series for one season. We did 22 episodes called Inc. with Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. And it was just one season. And then it was canceled. And it was very interesting because I was, you know, uh, one of the main characters. But in that particular case, when your show is starting off, you've got um, the network, the, the studio and the network, both, all the executives coming because it's shot in L.A., very few four-camera shows are shot else other than L.A. I mean, occasionally, you know, a, a major star will insist that it be done in New York. But they're really not shot like other shows where, where there's, you know, right-to-work states or it's cheaper to shoot in Louisiana or in, or in, uh, in, in Georgia or Canada or whatever. Four-camera shows are going to be shot in L.A. And the executives, because of that, get to go, which is a blessing and a curse because then you get a lot of notes. So you were surrounded in a new show with not only the studio notes, I'm talking about mostly the writers, not me, but the studio notes, and then you get network notes. And so it's, it's a melange of executives with contradictory notes, and it is a very clever political um, Babylon uh, that, that people have to uh, you know, interpret um, in order to be able to make a good show. Very difficult. I walked into, God knows what season it was, nine or something? You know, I was asked, it was one of those odd situations as an actor that come around rarely where um, I get a call saying, listen, they'd like to talk to you about doing three episodes of Frasier. And I said, okay, well, can you give me the scenes and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll learn them and I'll go audition for it. He said, you're being offered this. And I said, hello? Uh, <laughs> is this a, some kind of joke? And, they, and I said, because I've had offers before, but, but for a show like that, usually you have to compete. And I thought, hmm, okay, somebody knows my work. It must be Chris Lloyd or one of the guys running the show. And I met with a writer who sat down with me and said, look, we'd like Daphne to have a boyfriend that Niles has to take seriously and not to, I don't want to put you down or anything, but they are all the other boyfriends were big, hunky guys, good-looking, gorgeous guys. Not that you're not good-looking, but, <laughs> but I said, no, 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 I understand. I'm a character actor. I, understand what, I hate the term, but still. And they said, he said, no, we just, 
because it's you, it's going to be taken more seriously than just, I can't eat. I said, okay, cool. You're going to be a lawyer, and you're going to be, you know, this. And I said, okay. So I, I did um, three episodes. That's all I thought I was going to do. I think I ended up doing something like somewhere around 17, 20, something like that over a couple of years. But the, the storyline was so interesting, you know, uh, that it kept going. Obviously, it was a great storyline. And what was it like? I just finished telling you about all the studios and the, all the notes. None of that. They just come to have a glass of wine. They just come to go, nice to see you. Keep it up, you know. There's, their show is making billions of dollars for the studio and the network. They're not going to interfere. I'd never seen anything like that. And the other thing I'd never seen, I'd never been a part of, was um, how easygoing everybody was. It was like um, a little one-act play. We're doing a lot of the other shows that were on at the time. They were doing Seinfeld was on at the time. Um, Friends was shooting at the time. And we heard stories about how late into the night those people would go. And certainly Seinfeld would shoot every day. They'd shoot location. We were like a play. We didn't shoot locations really. We rehearsed not a lot. Kelsey Grammer, if he caught you rehearsing, you know, with another actor, he'd say, stop that. You know, he just liked the, the, the spontaneity of no rehearsal. And it was really, really loose. And and we got a new script uh, every morning, which is typical for for a situation comedy four camera show where the writers see you do a week, you know, a day's work, and then the next morning the actor gets, you get a new script, you know, um, and the thing about their new scripts was that they threw out a, jokes that would fill three other sitcoms. Anything that smacked of a joke was taken out. It was it, either it was character driven or it was gone. It was a really high standard of writing, and um, and I was, you know, blown away by it. I, uh, by the quality of the work, and also um, by how collaborative it was. It really was a little village of very, very talented people with no airs or ego that I noticed, and 20 million people showed up every week. And I'd forgotten it. I went with a friend to Las Vegas. I was going to teach him how to shoot craps. Um, um, and uh, I'd just forgotten that I was on Frasier. I don't know. It didn't occur to me. Because we were in a little, you know, room with a studio audience. And uh, I couldn't get through the lobby. And I hadn't had that in my career. I mean, I, I was known for this movie or that movie or stuff. You know, are you the guy who, um, do I know you? But it suddenly. I've had the pleasure of interviewing you about five years ago. You first launched for the Is that right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And actually, I was just acting. There, I was talking. I was. I was. I wasn't talking about you. I was actually talking about people talking to me, going, "Do I know you?" And I would go, "But cool." And I and I and I'd go. Uh, they go, "Are you? Do, we, do I know you?" So I was used to that. But what I wasn't used to was your Donnie from Frasier. And of course, and my buddy said to me, "You, fucking idiot! Don't you know that?" And I was going, "Oh right, I forgot I'm on a hit show." I just didn't occur to me, you know, how popular that show was. So it was a combination of incredible good fortune, incredibly nice people, really gifted people, and uh, one of those lucky things that happens in your in your career, you know. And uh, it was a it was a great experience. Yeah. 
I guess just on that note, obviously audiences waited many, many years to finally see Daphne and Niles together. Um, how did you feel about being the unfortunate Mr. Chump? What a bitch she was, right? No, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was inevitable and surprising. It was both inevitable and surprising, which is a definition of good writing, um, when things are both. Um, the way, way it happened was inevitable, and the way it happened was surprising. And it was one of the great double episodes, I mean, of that of being jilted at the altar. I thought it was brilliantly written, and it was, it was um, great to be just a small part of it. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Um, Jane Neves is on another poem called Hot in Cleveland now, Yeah. Um, where she's cycling through numerous boyfriends and exes. Uh, um, have, have you been tapped to... So like, uh, no, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Call the producers. <laughs> Any other questions, guys? Having worked in film, TV, and the stage, do you have a preference? Is there a great love? You know, my first love is the stage. I was seven years old when I started on the stage, and I probably had almost 20 years before I set foot in front of a camera. I was a, an actor in, in my hometown of Ottawa, and then uh, in Toronto as a young actor. And um, it's, a, it's a great love. And, and I certainly was doing it up until the moment when my wife announced that, sit down, we're having a baby. And then I, you know, at that point, I got asked this question in a panel about, you know, how do you choose your roles, as if I have, you know, 75 roles to choose from. But I do get to choose. And one of the ch things is that being a dad and thinking about supporting a family is that doing theater, you rarely, most actors really can't go away from theater having, if you're lucky if you've just paid the bills, You'd be fortunate if you just, you're not going to come away with any kind of profit that you can, you know. So it would be a selfish act, you know, in a way say, well, honey, I'm, I'm, I'm off to do a play. Good luck with the kids. Hope the mortgage gets paid. But I, my soul will be satisfied, and I know you'll be happy with that. So that wasn't going to happen. And so uh, I missed it, you know. I think it's probably why I wrote a play instead, you know, where, where our commitment was different, or I could be at home writing it, and, and then just, you know, be at rehearsals and see it on and then take off. Um, so that, yeah, theater is first, first love, and, and always, uh, I guess always will be. It's an actor's medium, isn't it? Um, but I love it all when it's great people and, and, uh, and great material. You're not getting rid of me. I'm, I'm staying here for the next hour. I like these people. <laughs> go away, go away. So what else? Other questions? Um, well, sorry, just to be rude, can we make this our last one, though? Please? Maybe not. I think you'll be summoned by, I think you'll be summoned by Bell. We don't have to listen to him. He's really, he's not a very forceful personality. He's all right. He won't, he won't, he won't, he won't, uh, right? You won't make any demands. He's, he's armed, actually. He's got to be careful. Okay. What, 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 what do we want, guys? Any, any I was working with Larry David on Curvy Enthusiasm. It was just an, one of the most odd situations that I've ever been in in my life. I was told I was going to go audition. For Larry David, it was maybe, I don't know, was it the second season? Towards the end of series two, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it had just been on the air. It was obviously a really funny show. And I said, they said, do you want to go on Curvy Enthusiasm? I said, sure, what do I do? Uh, well, they're shooting out in a shopping mall. Um, just go up there. I mean, he'd probably ask you to improvise a little bit, which I'd done all my life, one form of improv or another. And I got into trailer, which was a common trailer, not his, right? It was like a green room trailer. And uh, 
he came in, said, oh, hey, I, oh, I know you. You're a good actor. I'm just going to go to the bathroom. I said, okay. I sat there, and he came out of the bathroom, and he said, so, uh, you know, I don't write dialogue from the show. I write the prose. I write the stories. And the storyline for that character, the dentist, and he started giving me the whole thing. I'm listening to him. And he said, what do you think? And I said, what do I think? Does that sound like it might work? And I said, uh, it sounds hilarious, actually. It sounds really funny. It is? I said, are you insecure about it? He said, I'm insecure about everything. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, I'm never sure if anything's going to work. Uh, I'm just amazed I'm doing this at all. But does it sound like you'd like that? I said, it sounds really funny, actually, Larry. I mean, I don't think, I think it just depends on how it's done, but it sounds like a great storyline. So you'd like to do it? I said, yeah. He said, oh, great, okay. And I realized he kind of auditioned for me in a way. <laughs> you know, he, he was, and I got called a mage, and I said, I didn't have to audition. He just read me the thing, and, and I think he asked me to do it. So that was kind of, I was still to this day, I don't know what happened. Maybe he got it wrong. Well, I, apparently, I didn't do anything. And, uh, and then, it was, then it was really interesting, uh, because I could understand why they were addicted to it. I'm talking about the writers because they all come out of uh, a writer's room. They all come out of a Seinfeld-type writer's room. I don't know if you know what that's like, but it's nothing but blood and horror, especially in a comedy writer's room where they tear you apart, each other, and it's competitive and difficult. I'm sure there's a camaraderie. I'm in the middle of a story. Um, then, can you imagine, you know, you're writing, you've got seasons, you've got big boards up on the wall, you're mapping out 24 episodes. You're, you know, well, suddenly they're all there, okay, even though one of them is directing it, and they're all in the room, and they go to you and they say, okay, um, in this scene, you, you're just going to have to give him a shot. And he doesn't want to roll up his sweater because he's afraid of the elastic. So that's all you've got to accomplish is just eventually he's going to argue with you. Just do it at a certain point. Uh, don't try to be funny. Let him be funny. Um, oh, you got to mention this convention at a certain point, you know, this business thing. Other than that, that's it. That's the only thing you have to accomplish. Go. So you walk into the scene, uh, and you're just improvising two cameras so you can go different angles, right? And we just do it. Then they all rush in. And here's why they're addicted to it. Because they're writing on the spot. You've come up with stuff that they wouldn't have thought of. They're going, cut that, that didn't work. Do this, that was great, don't lose that. Oh, I got a line, do you have a line? Yeah, do this line, do this line. That, and that was great, don't change that. Oh, change that, that took too long. And do this, and you're listening, and you go, okay. So they're, they're addicted to the, the adrenaline of it. Uh, you know, the story's been worked out. All the beats have been worked out. You know how, you know how intricate Larry David is. All the beats have been worked out. You have to, certain, certain points have to be mentioned. But what they're getting off on, if you've got a, a decent actor, is that they were bringing stuff to the table that they wouldn't have imagined, which is great. They're asking you to hold on to that, get rid of the shit that didn't work, right, uh, on the spot. And, and there's four of them, you know, all, all doing it. And, and it's, so you're collaborating. So you can understand why they were so addicted to that. Because once you go back to a writer's room, it's kind of dull compared to that, you know. And I got a feeling for it. I understood doing, I think I only did two, but I got a feeling of why it was so uh, exciting. Cool.
Fake fucking guns!